You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Welcome to the Sound of Sanity. This is Nathan Alberson, humble, obedient host, joined by the engineer over there, Benjamin J. Solzer. How you doing today, Benjamin J. Solzer? I'm doing well, Nathan Alberson. And we've got Jacob Menzel, the pastor, who is a pretty swell guy. How you doing, Jake? Pretty good. What's up? Nothing much. Just doing an episode of Sound of Sanity with my two good friends. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great. I'm enjoying it. Hey, Ben, you beautiful dreamer. What do we have on tap for today, my friends? We will get right to it with this article by our old friends, the Gospel Coalition. Oh, our old friends, the Gospel it, Coalition. In, in particular, Brett McCracken. Yeah, a friend indeed. Our old friend, Brett McCracken. The author of Joyful Longing of Paul McCartney. Yeah. We uh, took that one on in episode 49. And uh, if you, dear listener, want to hear that, you can go and hear Benjamin Q. Salser get taken to task by one Seamus O'Reilly. Well, I, I really hope we've heard the last of that guy. <laughs> That's okay, Ben. I'm sure we'll have him on again soon. Nathan, are you actually hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth? No, I don't think stegosauruses are cool, Ben. Okay, so uh, what's today's article, Ben? I'm really glad that you asked, Jake. It is entitled, The Christ-Like Gaze in Film. <laughs> Wait, what? The Christ-Like Gaze? The Christ-like Can you spell gaze that for film. me real quick? Uh, G-A-Z-E, of course. What, do you, what did you think I was saying? <laughs> nothing. Okay. Speaking of nothing, I was really hoping, despite what I just did there, that we could get through an episode without a whole lot of snark. Yeah. For once, when we talk about the Gospel Coalition. When we see an article like this, I will acknowledge here before the world, it is our tendency to get a little bit snarky. Yeah, is that because it's like the cheap and easy way to argue against something cruddy like this? Uh, No, it's because it's a terrible article and it probably deserves it. But be that as it may, let's see if we can get through at least the description of this article without being any more snarky than we've already been. Jake, I agree with you 100%, and that's why I'm taking us into the No no Snark snark Zone! Man. Okay, well, I'll, I'll see if I can do this for you. Uh, the article begins. <clears throat> this, is, this is an article, once again, called The Christ-Like Gaze in Film by Mr. Brett McCracken, or Pastor Brett McCracken. Elder Brett, I'm not sure. I, uh, I think I read that he's he, a pastor. I th- yeah, I think he is. But in any case, he's a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, and he wrote an article called The Christ-Like Gaze in Film. Yeah, the article begins, quote, As an art form, film is largely about seeing something in a particular way and helping audiences see it that way, too. In moving pictures... The artist literally uses an eye-like device, camera. (laughs) What? (laughs) Nothing, nothing. Go ahead. Okay, okay. An eye-like device, camera, to tell a story by seeing subjects, people, places, things, in a certain... (laughs) Fail. (laughs) No snark zone, guys, remember. In a certain way... I wish the no snark zone could just prevent snark. (laughs) Yes. It's like shut down your brain. Well, we could do this. We could. I believe in us. Okay, good. Okay, it tells a story by seeing subjects, people, places, things in a certain way through variations in angle, 
distance, pace, composition, lighting, movement, and more. Okay, so McCracken then goes on to describe how filmmakers can be intentional about how their camera sees. Yes, he, he goes on, he says, as a Christian, and, quote, as a Christian and a lover of cinema, I'm intrigued by the idea of a Christ-like gaze. Is there a discernible aesthetic, a way of films seeing their subjects, that reflects what we know from scripture about how Jesus saw things? What might such an aesthetic look like? And whether the filmmaker knowingly employs this aesthetic or not, how might Christian viewers identify it when they see it? Oh, crumbs. Kate, can we step out of the no snark zone for a minute? Uh, absolutely not. If I have to stay here, you do too. Yeah, no. We are doing this without snark. Oh. Actually, we're doing a terrible job of that so far. But this is the no snark <laughs> We can zone, do it. And we can do it. Uh, I, I, I guess I picked a really bad day to stop drinking coffee. Yeah, be that as it may, Ben. Be that as it may. All right. McCracken goes on to argue that the aesthetic of a film, how it sees its subject visually, I guess, matters more than we think it does. And he comes up with three ideas of how a film camera can employ a Christ-like gaze. That is absolutely right. The first one is, so, so there's three ways that a film camera or a film aesthetic can be more Christ-like. Yeah, the first, these are three rules for cinematographers, I guess. Yeah, except so, for he's Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. The first one is compassionate nearness, not dispassionate distance. Quote, time and time again, when Jesus sees people... He has compassion. He has a tender, loving gaze, one that is clearly moved by beholding image of God-bearing beings who are suffering, sinning, and lost. McCracken continues, quote, What would this look like in a filmmaking aesthetic? First, I think it means the way we depict characters, whether protagonists or antagonists, starts from a place of respecting their innate dignity and potential as humans created in the image of God, end quote. Uh, this is a genuinely non-snarky question. If, the way he sets his article up, he's going to be talking about a visual and aesthetic. What does any of what he just said have to do with visual composition? Yeah, yeah I, I think McCracken is kind of unsure about that himself, Nathan. So he spends another paragraph or two in the article talking just generally about how filmmakers should make movies that respect people, sympathize with people. Finally, he tells us, quote, visually... This often looks like camera work that is more intimate and close up, perhaps more handheld, evoking an invisible godlike presence hovering around and pursuing a subject always near in times of trouble. Okay, again, don't want to be snarky here. I really just want to make sure I understand what he's arguing. Just just to make it crystal clear is that handheld close up camera work is more Christ-like, his word, than static far off camera composition in the film yeah. that's that's exactly what he's arguing i think i don't know how else to interpret it that's those are the yeah. words on the paper and, and then he goes on i mean he goes on to reference a film that and this is a quote quote features many long takes with a camera following its young protagonist usually from a short distance behind him as he runs or walks around the harsh landscapes of the western united states this visual evokes a fatherly compassion a camera that is watching over this lonely fearful boy even when he doesn't know it End quote. Well, all right. Uh, here's the non-snarky way of saying what I want to say about this. This is really dumb, guys. <laughs> well, okay. That may be really dumb, but we haven't heard his other two points yet. He said so that just get a hovering camera is fatherly compassion. Ugh. He did say that, yeah. And I'm sure that we could come up with many examples and perhaps will later of times when there are long takes of a camera following a protagonist from a short distance behind him as he runs around harsh landscapes that 
are maybe not so fatherly or so compassionate, in feel, like certain slasher films. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't think there's maybe any. So I don't, I don't, there's right. no reason to keep but, that ammo. Okay, but, but slasher films. But let's get through yeah. and hear his points out. What's the second way that filmmakers can be more Christ-like? The second rule or second guideline that he gives us. Hey, I'm going to read that. Uh, they can be quote attentive, not manipulative. Unquote. Well, here, here's another quote to explain that quote. Another mark of the Christ-like gaze in a film is attentiveness. It is a sense of presence where the subject in front of the camera, whether a person or an environment, is noticed, observed, and respected rather than manipulated for mere utility. Quote, Jesus was no utilitarian, and quote, this is what McCracken says. And so um, he sets up this dichotomy, attentiveness versus manipulation. He goes on to detail how Jesus always spent time with sinners and tax collectors. Quote, he was interruptible. For Jesus, relationships and people mattered more than efficiency. So what is his takeaway for movies? He says, quote, a Christ-like gaze in a film takes time to notice things. Its primary value is not efficiency, it is patience and presence. What does this look like aesthetically? It often looks like avoiding reliance on dialogue and letting images speak. It looks like longer shot lengths, allowing the camera to linger on a character's face for a few beats even after they've stopped talking. Quote, when a film's camera only notices what it needs to notice to advance the plot, it reveals an unloving, incurious, and dispassionate posture toward the world. And again, I, I know we're in the no snark zone, and I know that we haven't gotten to the part where we argue back a, against so this, dumb. but life is about eliminating superfluous details. We do it all the time in every situation, and certainly storytelling. I mean, you know, look up any story manual, read Aristotle's poet. Okay. But McCracken flies in the face of all of that. So if you could just let me break the rule for just a minute. No, Jake, we're, we're in the no snark would, zone. But it would be really fun if we could just break the rule. I wasn't allowed to. You can't either. You have to play Uh, by your own rules. Okay. So he's got three rules or points or guidelines for filmmaking aesthetics that are Christ-like. What's the third one? I have have the third one right here. Uh, I'm sorry. That sounded kind of snarky. Uh, (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Sorry. sorry. Rain it in. Okay. Okay. Uh, A Christ-like filmmaking aesthetic is one that has a, quote, willingness to see suffering but not without hope. Uh, <laughs> All right, there you go. That was nope, little nope, noises. Nope, nope. Uh, McCracken writes, quote, a gaze that is truly attentive to our fallen world often beholds suffering. To be present in the world... <laughs> <laughs> No snark zone, sorry. Jake. I'm sorry. <laughs> be... We're just laughing. It's so yeah, no, we're, just laughing. We're, just, we're laughing with him. Yeah, right. We're laughing with him. <laughs> to be present in the world oh, 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 is to be in a relationship with people is to witness all manner of pain and heartbreak and horror. Okay, so McCracken goes on, quote, Good Friday is not a mere setup for Easter Sunday. Good Friday has profound aesthetic. Good Friday. Ugh. Good Friday has profound aesthetic meaning in its own right that should not be passed over. Any movie that adopts the perspective of Jesus cannot skip through suffering. Yeah, we're sorry to have to read some of this on the air, the air listener. <laughs> we really are. Okay, uh, quote, and yet, period, the resurrection is real. Quote, some films with a Christ-like gaze may feel dark and hopeless for 90% of the runtime. Then, in the final moments, there is a glimmer. Quote, Having loved, noticed, and seen the suffering of its subjects, a Christ-like gaze ultimately longs to see them heal, change, recover, restore, resurrect. Hey, 
I can't stand it anymore. I'm taking us out of the no snark zone. This article is so wise and so helpful. Oh, guys, but he and he understands film grammar so well. Yes, he isn't just some guy that likes things and is making oppressive super spiritual aesthetic principles out of them for some reason that people pay money to. Yeah, it's not like he thinks Terrence Malick is the best ever and he really likes beautifully broken indie dramas and thinks says that those are the only kinds of movies that should ever be made. No, it's not like that. Uh, no, no, it's it's, it's uh, not like that. Uh, <laughs> it's really not. not like that. Not uh, like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Did he really say Good Friday has aesthetic value? Good Friday has profound aesthetic meaning. Yeah. In its own right, that should not be passed over. It has profound aesthetic. Good Friday has profound aesthetic meaning is like it's Gag me with borderline like blasphemous. blasphemous. Yeah, it feels like awful. blasphemy reading that sentence. Yes. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I didn't me? feel snarky when Are Ben you read me? that. The I Son of angry. God was crucified. And, and what we have to say about that is it has profound aesthetic meaning. Aesthetic meaning? Sheesh. Yeah. Ugh. So we're going to do an episode, uh, as, as of this recording date, we haven't recorded this yet, but we're going to do an episode with our friend Brandon, uh, who me and Jake like to discuss all things aesthetic with, and specifically literature, and we're going to tear this article apart on an aesthetic level. Yep. For now, t- to really open up this subject, I'm contractually obliged to cut to a segment from our friends at the Popcorn Coalition. Oh boy. Who, you know, uh, pastors Kevin, Evan, and Stu... They're going to have, they have some thoughts, I think. They've been discussing the filmic gaze. Let's find out what they have to say. What do you say, fellas? Oh, I I say we're contractually obliged. Hello, friends. You're listening to the Popcorn Coalition from First Church of Sanityville. My name is Pastor Kevin, and today we're talking about camera work or cinematography and the redemptive gaze in cinema. Isn't that right, Pastor Evan? Oh, yes, Kevin. And I think there are so many great redemptive gays in cinema, from Ian McKellen to Ellen DeGeneres. Excuse me, Evan. I believe Kevin was referring to a different type of gays. Well, I'm accepting of all of them. And this, of course, is Youth Pastor Stu. And Stu, you watch a lot of black and white movies. Stu, would you say that black and white movies are the godliest, most redemptive type of movies? You stole the words right out of my mouth, Pastor Evan. Because that seems very obvious to me. Black and white movies show the world as the bleak, colorless place that it is after the fall. Well, now, actually, Evan, I would argue that color films are the godliest, most redemptive movies. They show us the variety and vitality of creation. The blue sky, a red rose, a green. Oh, what's something that's green in nature? Kevin, I I hope this doesn't come off as mean or passive aggressive, but... Are you by any chance a big dumb idiot who's never read your Bible? Oh, I've read my Bible, Evan. One time, I even read Leviticus. Well, then you should know that black and white films are clearly the most redemptive. It doesn't take a theology degree to see that. Evan, my theology degree allows me to harmonize many different points of view, both in terms of faith and practice. On the one hand, you have Kevin's point of view, which is in harmony with the great theological tapestry of the ages. On the other hand, you have Evan's point of view, which is correct. Stu, did you even go to seminary? Kevin, we can't be so black and white. Hey, I thought you agreed with me. Evan, how about you don't try to shove your knowledge and your awesomeness down Stu's throat? Who do you think you are? Stephen Furtick? Who I am is a man who knows redemptive cinema when he sees it, Kevin. Whatever, Evan. You probably think Sherlock Gnomes was redemptive cinema. You and I both know that movie was nothing to write Gnome about. 
Kevin. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stu. It's just difficult when Pastor Kevin wants to say that color films are more redemptive. And it's like, where's his scripture? Where's his theological evidence? I have all the evidence I need, Evan, when I open my eyes and see the beautifully broken, redemptive world we live in, which is, you'll note, in color. So do you think your great-grandparents were sinning when they had only black and white television? I think they were walking in the televised light that they had, Evan. Hey guys, who wants coffee? Ricky, we discussed this. The light wasn't on, Stuart. Ricky, how do you feel about gays in cinema? No, Patrick Harris is all right. Ricky, uh, what would you say if I told you Kevin says color is a more redemptive film stock? Hmm get a real job comes to mind? Speaking of jobs, Ricky, don't you have one to be doing? Are all the copies of the Freedom from Azkaban Sunday School Workbook on my desk? You never decided on a final subtitle. Do you want to go with redemptive themes in the wizarding world of J.K. Rowling, or from Dementor to Delightor, or like Clay in the hands of Harry Potter, or Patristics and Patronuses, or Goblet of Wine, Goblet of Fire? Ricky, we talked about this. The subtitle is Perching the Dursleys and Urging on Your Inner Arror. I don't know how I forgot. It's so totally not ridiculous. Oh, the ridiculous charm is my favorite. You can turn all your deepest fears into your greatest jokes. Yeah, neat. Why don't you make that a podcast? You could call it Expecto Redempto. Ricky! Ricky, do you have a theology degree you didn't tell us about? Or are you just a freaking genius? Expecto Redempto. Two words that say so much. Without saying anything at all. Stu, you and Ricky should work to develop this podcast. Hmm, I'm sure that any ideas we could conjure up for Expecto Redempto would be put to better use in the Sunday school curriculum I've already been working on for three months. Freedom from Azkaban? Purging the Dursleys and urging on your inner aura? I'm sorry, Stu. It's like those words have lost their meaning for me. Besides, Stu, who do you care more about? The couple hundred kids in your Sunday school class? Or the 50 trillion podcast listeners out there? Who are populating this rolling sphere, Stu? A shepherd tends first to his own flock. Actually, Stu, a good shepherd. The good shepherd. Leaves behind his couple hundred and goes out in search of the 50 trillion lost sheep. Ricky, what are we paying you? Nothing. Double it. And we're back. All right. So we're going to spend a whole episode of The Bookening, me, Jake, our, our, our old pal, Brandon. We're going to tear this article apart aesthetically. That's not what I want to do today in this episode. I, I think The Bookening will have a much more free-form kind of conversation. We will be able to talk through all the ways that this article fails aesthetically and fails in its understanding of aesthetics. Let's take a step back, though, today on Sound of Sanity and just talk very simply about how this article fails in its understanding of Christ. Because true or false, it does. True. Yep. The fact it, it, he's describing a certain kind of filmmaking quality that he likes. Terrence Malick, basically. It is Terrence Malick. And it, I mean, if you go to McCracken's website, he, his latest article as of this recording is a page full of all the links to all the articles he's ever written on Terrence Malick. Including articles about, with names like a Malickian sensibility. And... Yeah, and with some lines about how he's eventually going to write a book about Terrence Malick. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he really likes Terrence Malick's aesthetic. He likes the way it feels and he likes the way it makes him feel. And so he interprets this because he likes it as how Jesus looks at him. This is how he wants, he wants Jesus to look at him and at everyone and at the world the way that Terrence Malick frames his shots right. and tells his stories. 
that's it. That one-dimensional reality is the way that he characterizes Jesus. Right. So his first point is, what again, Ben? It's compassionate nearness. Not dispassionate distance. That's right. Because that's a, a dichotomy. Distance and nearness are a dichotomy. That's, God is not distant. He is always near. Jesus is always near, never distant. By, 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 and by if he were distant, then he would be dispassionate. He would be dispassionate. That's right. And by right. implication, he's, he's equally near to everyone and should be as a principle of storytelling. You, you know, that doesn't, not, it doesn't even make sense, but it's also bad theology. Um, God is not compassionately near to everyone. And God doesn't always feel compassionately near to those he does love and is a father too. Well, first of all, on a very simple level, if you just want to look at Jesus's ministry, he withdrew from people all the time. I mean, very basically, Jesus would get in a boat. Oh, the crowd's pressing it. Oh, they're going to stone me. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go up on a mountain. I'm going to pray. Right, right, So that happened all the time. So Jesus was a lot more practical than this sort of airy Turns out Jesus related to a lot of people differently. Yes. And the only people, Mm -hmm. and the people that he interacted with weren't only the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, which these people love to reference all Mm -hmm. the time. That's right. They weren't always Jews. They were non-Jews. They were Jewish Pharisees and hypocrites. And, you know, Jesus engaged with people, not out of some principle of compassionate nearness, but out of a sense of doing the will of his father and loving the people in front of him and giving to the people in front of him what they needed, which wasn't always the exact same thing. Right. No, it didn't always give them the feeling of compassion, which is all that Brett McCracken is talking about. Not what, not even what real compassion looks like when it's exercised. No, just a certain but, feeling, yeah. sense, sensibility yeah. Yeah. that communicates compassion to him. Right. And I'm sure, I'm sure that that's the way Peter, I mean, I'm a little snark for you. I'm sure that that's the way the apostle Peter felt when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right. It was a sense of real compassion. I mean, or when Jesus overturned grief. the tables in the right. twice in, in right. the money changers' tables in the temple, it's like you could argue that there is. Or when he just started, compassion. he was very calling near. down woes on the That's Pharisees. Sure. Right, or, you whitewashed tombs, you viper, you denim. Uh, Jesus related to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. I mean, it feels dumb to have to say that, but it, yeah, it Mr. Is, McCracken is making us have it, to say it, obvious things. It it, it it is dumb. A lot of Christians will do with the word love what, what Mr. McCracken's doing with the word compassion. Love is love is the appropriate category. I mean, all we're talking about is different applications of Jesus' love for the Father first and then for his people. And some of that we would call compassion. Some of it... Wrath. <laughs> we, we just, yeah, some of it we, 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 call, we call wrath. It all grows out of his love for the Father. You don't want to reduce love either to some emotional principle of you made me feel this way, therefore it's love. But that's what he's doing. The second point of McCracken is what... Filmmakers need to be attentive, not manipulative. Attentive, not manipulative. So there are two options for filmmakers, again, here with his dichotomies. There are two options. You can either be attentive. Like Jesus was, apparently. Like Jesus was, or manipulative. And the way that he defines the difference in terms of aesthetics Mm -hmm. is you need long shots. Let your shots linger. Don't always cut right after people. someone talks. You can't let your film be dialogue driven. You have to let the let images do the work for you. Again, just sounds like the things that Brett McCracken happens to like in a movie. Yeah, right. I think I think the other day when we were talking about this, not to horn in on the what the bookending is going to do too much, but we we brought up the Gospel of Mark. One thing just happens right after another. There's no like long takes action. in the gospel. Yeah, it's yeah, all right. actions. Just this happened, then he did this, and immediately. I mean, this. if you think about just store forms, mm-hmm. literary forms, and then you think about all of the f- literary forms that the Bible employs mm. with the written word. McCracken wants to take 
all of that variety that God uses in scripture and say, when it comes to film, there's only one. Right. There's one school. There's one style. There's one form. There's no variety. There's no multiple ways of telling a story here. Right. Only one that really is truly Christ-like and compassionate. Mm. And I think that he would probably say the same thing about preaching styles. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm and sure. I... You know, there's a very specific style of preaching and a very specific style of writing. Well, that, again, and that's, that's what all the Gospel Coalition yeah things has. sound like, and that's that's what yeah. makes and this actually dangerous like, and worth engaging with more so than just read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Read the Bible. Read a read a minor prophet, then read a major prophet, then read Leviticus, and then read the Psalms, and then read Mark, and then read John, and see the difference between how John and Mark. Mm-hmm. tell the story of Jesus's time here on earth and then read Revelation. Yeah. For goodness sake. Well, that's that's probably basically what we're going to spend an hour saying on the bookening, but Yes, um, but with greater detail and greater effectiveness. Yes, it, well, <laughs> I thought that was very effective, but don't denigrate yourself. But let's not get lost in the aesthetic weeds with McCracken right now. What is he what is he saying actually saying about Jesus? He's saying that Jesus was no utilitarian. That's no his words. No utilitarian. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. It means means. that he wasn't about his father's business, but he was about smelling (laughs) the roses. That's right. right. That's right. If a Samaritan woman came to a well, he would just talk to her. He didn't. It's not not like Jesus had a purpose. Which means that he's sort of aimless and just ready and willing to, like a child, take in the wonder of the world and interact with whoever happened across his path. Not that he was that he had a mission, that he was going, so that he had something to do, that he, there were times where he didn't have time for certain people or certain things. This is this is all about this way that Christians think about how they should be relating to each other and to mm-hmm. the world. There's too much harshness in the church. There's too much conflict. There's too much fighting. You guys just need to pay attention and listen, 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 and stop talking, and stop arguing, and stop discerning. <laughs> and I know that that's a simplistic way of putting it, but good grief. That's it. That's what's happening. And that's 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 what his language means. Right. Uh, meanwhile... And of course, there's value to stopping and smelling the roses and enjoying the creation. And, and, and you do have those enjoy, stories yeah, where people, Jesus is on his way to something and he sees someone and he interrupts himself to do something. But... If or he, he lets a beggar interrupt him on the side of the of road. Of course. Or he condemns the disciples for refusing to allow him to be interrupted by the children or by the beggars or by the... But to make a principle out of that and to act like Jesus didn't have a mission, that he wasn't about his father's business, That's right. that he wasn't always doing things with an eye to... The end re- game. His, yeah, the end game, his redemptive plan, as these guys would put it. It's just silly. They ignore the, the proper hierarchy and they they invert it. So the actual hierarchy is one, Jesus is going to do his father's will. And underneath that will, is he going to pay attention to people and have compassion and interrupt himself like you guys said? Sure. Right. What McCracken wants to do is say, no, no, the bottom thing comes on the top. He's not a utilitarian. Right. It starts by engaging with people, beautifully broken people. That's and right. then it works its way out from there as opposed mm-hmm. to... And, 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 and that becomes what the glory of God is defined by. Instead of starting with the glory of God as scripture defines it and working down it with our compassion. And his... Okay. So his final point was... Uh, yeah. A Christ-like filmmaking aesthetic is one that has a willingness to see suffering, but not without hope. First of all, let's just point out that this, this, we're out, clearly out of the realm of, of aesthetics. Yeah. And we're just talking about 
is it's so generic it's hardly worth engaging That's with right. in my mind it's yeah, just like what do you even mean by that dude I, it means you liked children of men because it felt depressing and then it had a nice existential ending which he actually mm. says he yeah. mentions children of men in there and a number of other movies most of them i would peg as existential basically actually yeah. not not christian in any way shape or form but he likes yeah, that like kind to of baptize it yes he just wants to baptize it and the way he baptizes it is by this blasphemous i mean i don't even want to make any bones about saying it yep. this thing about what what was it what good was friday it? has this aesthetic significance that you can't pass over an aesthetic meaning in its own right all films have to have a good friday aesthetic that can't be passed over lightly and d- display or depict suffering <sighs> and not pass over it lightly like like cheesy christian feel good films or hallmark films do once again aesthetically speaking what he's basically saying is it's not like one book can be song of songs and one book can be ecclesiastes it has to feel like ecclesiastes and then have a little song of song indication at the end but not even because that's what i happen to like it's like actually different things even different books of the bible can try and achieve different things it's a big world god made with a lot of different stuff that happens in it and again i think it you see it being applied to sermons i think he's i think he's learned from terrence malick how to preach yes and then he's applying his sermon principles back to the art of filmmaking Mm -hmm. and so Every sermon has to talk about suffering and brokenness and then end with the hope of resurrection, a hope of the gospel. No sermon, no article, no film, no anything can't tell the full story of redemption. And the way that you tell that is suffering and brokenness and hope. And that's it. That's the only way to tell it. And notice we never deal with sin or righteousness or judgment. Nope. We, do, we never bring those up as things to be depicted. It's compassion for the suffering, compassion for the broken, and then it's hope and redemption. And that's that's the gospel. That's a Christ-like way of approaching everything. And uh, film in particular is what he's talking about. It's the way you approach film. So that story has to be told. That feeling of, I've felt something of the sadness of the suffering and brokenness of the world. And I've lingered over these moments and I've not had to think about dialogue, but I've just, you know, enjoyed these images. And now we end with some call to, to hope, you know, because of, of Jesus. Right. Yeah. It's just like waving a magic Bible wand over something that this guy just happens to like. And and I've heard this, I'm, I'm thinking of a very specific sermon. I've heard many in this mold, but I remember a sermon I heard several years ago. I was at a church and the pastor got up. He was a young dude. And he gave this sermon where he described in pretty graphic detail female circumcision and how that's done and how wicked it is. And he spent a lot of time really making you feel what a brutal, depraved world we live in. But it wasn't really about sin. What I remember is it took me a while to figure out what was wrong with it. Cause I was like, here's a guy that is actually looking depravity in the face, which is, I'm not sure I agree. He needed to be so graphic about it, but on the face of it, that would be something that you'd want something that's largely missing from the church. So it took me a while to figure out like, what's, What's wrong with this? And then I realized, wait a second, he's not actually talking about sin. He's not actually talking about righteousness. He's not talking about God's holiness, God's wrath. He's not actually telling the gospel. He's just making you feel really, really, really bad and spending a lot of time doing it in a really emotionally manipulative way. And then he's giving you a little redemption at the end. I don't even remember what the redemption, I'm sure he gave some version of the gospel message, but what it came down to to was- I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, well, that's. I I was just going to say that gets to something that McCracken apparently doesn't understand, which is that there are lots of ways to be manipulative. Right. Mm -hmm. Lots of ways to be manipulative in film. And, you know, and the line between what you want art to do and what you're calling manipulation is not 
crystal clear because art is meant to um, evoke emotion. All art is manipulative. There's good manipulation. Right. There's bad That's manipulation. Right. You have to understand yeah. that if you're going to begin to approach the arts. And, and guess what? It is working on your heart and your mind. It is working through the images. It's working through the score. It's working through the dialogue to produce an effect. If that's the nature of manipulation, then it's also the nature of art. Manipulation is obviously something that has a pejorative connotation, connotation to it. We will open this so, up yeah, more. Let's open it up more on the book and on the what book we're ending. actually talking about here. But, yes. Yeah. Just to sum up what we've been saying, this article by Brett McCracken, no snark, it's really bad. It's bad. Yep. Kind of mm. made me angry hearing some of it. It's bad in itself because it's confused and confusing, but... Ultimately, it's bad because of its bogus depiction of Jesus. Yes. And the fact that it throws around so many aesthetic terms and combines them with some sort of quote-unquote theological terms and puts it all in this stew, I think it makes it confusing for simple people that maybe don't think about film aesthetics a lot. But I hate the fact that I just think this article, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to read it, or maybe they won't read it. Hopefully, they just won't find it. But there's certain people that'll read it that'll think, that'll just feel oppressed by it because they'll just be like, this is, sounds bad and weird, but... I guess he knows more than I do. He has using all these $20 words and stuff. Anyway. Yep. Well, it's like you said. It's a bunch of Christianese pasted on a confusing mishmash talk about aesthetics and ethics in a way that's really gross. And it's not going to... Oh, my stars. What? This... <laughs> It's the D the Devil's Advocacy Alarm, the DAA. The, the DAA. It's never done that to me before. Oh, ben, <laughs> it always what? lets me talk when I want to talk. You know, it's <laughs> you just like interrupts what me. am I, a third class member of Sound of Sanity? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, but oh, uh, okay. And as such, explain to us the, what the Devil's Advocacy okay, Alarm if I, is. If I have to, it's it just it's an alarm that goes off to to tell us that one of us is going to be kind of a turncoat and argue against what we've been saying. I mean, I think I don't know what any devil could say to us today. We've made some pretty clear, obvious points about a dumb article, but someone's going to have to argue uh, for Brett McCracken's position, such as it there, I guess, if there is one. Well, there's only one man that I can think of for this job. Oh, Nathan, I, I, I couldn't. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate that. That's right. That's that's why <laughs> Oh, <laughs> we're, we're giving oh, it okay. to Pastor Jacob Mensel. Oh, right. Of course. Take it away, Jake. Okay, this is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I want to say is that uh, there are not a lot of people out there trying to make a good argument for aesthetic film, aesthetics in film. Brett McCracken uh, studied film at UCLA. He lives in LA or Hollywood or something like that. And he's trying to give just a few principles that he thinks are biblical and representative of Jesus. And his principle, one of his first principle is that Jesus is compassionate. And so, okay, cool. So I win. <laughs> why, why don't we, I like your first sentence a lot, um, that there's, 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 there's no harm in someone trying to make a, a, a good argument for aesthetic principles. And, and, I, and I'm all for that if Brett McCracken wants to try. I, I'm, I'm all for like builders trying to construct apartment buildings that don't topple over. Right, but when However, they topple over and kill <laughs> right, lots of people, right. in fact, in fact, there is it, some harm in Yeah, that. yeah, it's like, I, I, you know, I think that, that if you actually do that, you should probably not have yet left the apprentice stage of construction. And similarly, I don't think uh, Brett McCracken and should ever have been given a publishing platform like the Gospel Coalition to influence hundreds of thousands of naive readers with his dumb article. So he should he should try he should keep trying and not be published. 
Jake, you know what? I'm thinking I'm going to – maybe I should let you off the hook here. We like to have Please these these devil's advocacy the alar- or, or arguments where somebody takes the – People don't appreciate how much difficulty and ingenuity goes into defending some of these things. Well, mm-hmm. there was that one a couple of weeks ago where I had to defend the Hawkeye article. Yeah. And I just blustered and said horrible things. And because I felt, that's all that she could do. And I felt really bad about it. Because it was that stupid. It. Yeah. And so I just had to be stupid and wicked. And there can be some utility, and I we'll keep doing the segment in the future. But for today, instead of just having you bluster and repeat this guy's arguments, which is let's just work together and see what's the most charitable light we can throw on this. Like, how could let, let's work together and build right. a devil's advocacy argument? Mm-hmm. See if we can get anywhere. Is there any way right. to defend what this guy's doing with any kind of a clean conscience, guys? <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe the answer is okay. just no. Uh, uh, uh. Jake was kind of starting to pull the thread there of, yes, Jesus was compassionate. Okay, sure. Yes, he was attentive to people. Yes, there is. Like, well, I think if you try to argue that he is first, right, compassionate in how he looks at people and at the world, that the first look is one of pity, compassion, and love for those who bear the image of God those whom he wants to save, those whom he came to save. Mm -hmm. You could argue that everything that we do should have that vibe first and foremost. Yes, but the way that that worked its way out in Jesus's life Hmm. was him acting in many different ways towards many different people. And the way that it works it out Self out aesthetically is going to mean all kinds of things. I mean, you could, in other words, you could make a very vague general principle, and I think I'd agree, but. Well, you, you well, could say. Well, so you can't make an aesthetic principle out of compassion. Right. I think mm-hmm. that's the problem. What you can do is argue that compassion and love ought to be behind everything that we do, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily translate into a certain camera composition aesthetic. Which, just to be clear, that is, is what this guy is saying. That is what he's, right. saying. There, he's saying. It sounds dumb one, when you just say it like that. I but. know, but he, he actually is saying there is one camera composition aesthetic that is legitimate because it conveys a sense of compassion. And he, I mean, even like how he describes it, like we we said it at the start of the show is like every, every way in how he described it could be, uh, used in a horror film. It has been quite it famously been. used many times in horror film. The camera right? draws closer and then draws but back that camera and circles around. And, and is, you know, is lingering behind somebody who's running. And so the point, the point is, you know, his understanding of what looks and feels like compassion is just bogus. Yeah, it's just bogus. Because I just don't think he understands Jesus. Not to put too fine a point on it, he does not right. understand yes. this hard, difficult savior that came and overturned tables and, and said things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You'd yeah, be cast out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing. And Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the scriptures. And <sighs> in, in what McCracken would want to do is sort of flatten all of that out into this like compassionate nearness, mm-hmm. what he calls compassionate nearness, this vibe of warmth mm-hmm. that he projects to o- always being around Jesus. Yeah. You read the and, Gospels and, and you read them with your eyes open. It actually come off warm. Yeah like that all the time. And I would almost want to argue, I don't know if I'm quite prepared to say this, but most of the time he doesn't. Like He often comes off very cold. Abrasive, hard, difficult. I mean, these are the, if you just read the Gospels for the first time. Think about him ignoring the woman 
You're just straight up ignoring the Canaanite woman. Mm -hmm. You and, don't throw the children's food to the dogs. That's all he says to her, and he keeps moving. Right. And it's not until she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table that he stops. And I'm sure that McCracken would say that, you know, it's all meant in love, and he's all pushing her and to display more faith, which she does, and to use her as a good example. And all that's true. But he's also trying to talk about a vibe. Right. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll give I'll give McCracken this much. I don't, th you know, I don't believe that Jesus was cold even to that woman when he said that. But that's different than what McCracken is talking about. McCracken really does want Jesus to be something he's he's not. He when he says like you you see suffering but not without hope. That's how you should that's how you should make your your stories your movies. Just think of Jesus ministering for three years with Judas. You know. Jesus clearly loved Judas and had compassion on him. Yeah, okay, fine. But he knew from the beginning that Judas was a devil. Mm -hmm. And did, so did he, did he hope that, that Judas's suffering would lead to redemption? Well, Judas's suffering served a larger purpose in God's redemption. But it didn't redeem Judas, just like the destruction of Jerusalem. Over, which Jesus wept over. Which, which Jesus wept over. He didn't look at it with hope in the sense that he hoped for those people who were going to be killed and damned. Let's not be let's not be dumb about this, right? That was the end for those people, even though Jesus wept over them and felt compassion for them. Um, that that was the end. There wasn't any hope for them in that sense. Well, you've made absolutely no points, devil, because... <laughs> Sorry. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. It really is impossible. There is no argument to be made for this article. Yeah, we forgot about the fact that we were even trying to build one and started slapping the article around again because... Every time you try, it's just so self-evidently stupid. Right. The guy doesn't understand aesthetics. He doesn't understand Jesus Christ. I mean, the ignorance. I don't think that we could call him and put him on the phone right now and that he could defend a word that he said. I don't think he has what it takes. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. It's just... You know who I get angry at is not him, but just the Gospel Coalition in general. He's like, an editor. I know. He's the C he's a senior editor of the Gospel. He is the Gospel Coalition. Who else is there to be angry with about Brett McCracken? Okay, I'm angry like, at him, and I'm angry at the whole organ. Like, when someone, whoever, there was somebody who was handed this pile of garbage. You know, no one in Brett McCracken's life has ever just said, dude, you are writing nonsense. It's not logical. It's not spiritual. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow. And it dishonors it's bad Christ. writing. Yes, it it, it it's it's it, it is a shame to the name of Christ. It's 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 a bad witness. It's bad for the church. It's it is actually destructive. And it's not even well thought out. I mean, just not to pile on. Well, I when mean, when C.S. Lewis go back to the joyful longing of Paul McCartney's oh, carpool karaoke, a longing that is a having or what in the world was the? <laughs> I can't remember. That was so. It was so well, long ago. It was I, so I remember nonsensical. what I remember what the Popcorn Coalition did with that. That <laughs> is having will become longing. Will become having. Will become longing. <laughs> they just right. that's they a kind of nonsensical mantra. The thing, if people listen to that article, what happens at the end of that is that our good friend Seamus O'Reilly from Harathgar's Hall actually sets the article on fire and says, let's just not bother with this crap. And when we when we were approaching this episode, we said, you know what? We're not going to just make fun of it. We're not just going to set it on fire. We're genuinely we're not, not just going to talk about his stupid aesthetic right. nonsense. We are going to engage with it. The, yeah. But it's really hard to do because there's nothing to engage with because it's just gobbledygook. It's just gobbledygook. It's just super spiritual gobbledygook. And with that said, We'll come back after the break, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, tie this up, put a nice bow on it. But right now, we really need to go to a break, so we'll be right back after this. 
Well, Lance, here we are at the gas station. While you fill up the tank here in this distant corner of the property, real near those dark and dangerous looking woods, I reckon I'll go in and have an awkward conversation with that attractive gas station lady and buy a maple bar. Why, Chip, it sounds like you're interested in more than one kind of sugar today. Lance, do you mean the sugar that's in the donut itself, as well as the sugar in the maple icing? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah Chip, Chip, that's what I mean. Oh, and I'm going to go get some coffee, too. But this time, I'm going to get it without a lid. That gas station lady always tells me I don't have to keep a lid on everything. Well, uh, Chip, I, I think there's a subtext here that you're not quite following. See, when she says that to you, she, uh, uh, well, uh, never mind. Sure thing, Lance. Hoo boy, <laughs> you know that gas station lady. There's something funny about her. Eh, stick him up. Whoa, hey, where'd you come from? From those crime-infested woods, not ten feet away. You should be more careful where you pump your gas, see? Now stick him up and give me all your money. Okay, but in that order or in the reverse order? Because I, I don't quite understand. You know, it makes me mad when my victims point out that I'm not very good at this. So now I'm going to beat you up, see? I'm putting away my gun and getting out my blackjack. Well, I, I work for Mr. Stone, honey, to the, the richest and most powerful conservative propagandist in Sanityville, so... And because you threatened me and my criminal pals, I'm going to beat you up, just like I was already going to do. Greetings, violent criminal. Greetings, innocent citizen. Captain's sanity. You come at just the right time to stop a very terrible mugging. Grifes, a superhero. The tables have turned on me now, see? Ha ha ha. At ease, Mr. Mugger. At ease, Mr. Bleeding Victim. I'm not here to intervene. I'm here to watch. Uh, say, say what now? Yes, my broken, my all-too-human friends. Feel the fatherly warmth of my compassionate nearness. Ah, how I see myself in each of you. On the one hand, the brokenness that can lead a man to turn to a life of crime. On the other hand, the brokenness that comes from having your ribs, well, uh, broken. Wait, so you ain't gonna stop me from repeatedly kicking this here innocent guy and smacking him around with this here blackjack? Stop you? I, Captain Sanity, stand for attentiveness, not manipulation. How could I presume to treat all the problems I encounter in this world as mere opportunities for me to carry out my superhero agenda? Right. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, 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 ca Captain Sanity, you worthless excuse for a superhero. Oh, oh. Ah, suffering oh. citizens. Oh, a hopeful gaze sees the faint light of future redemption with squinty eyes. Squinty eyes. Speaking of which, I hear another crime taking place. It grieves me, but I must be off to witness the prelude to another future redemption. Just remember, citizens, just remember. Squinty eyes. You could have at least called the cops, you worthless. I reckon you don't need the cops, Lance. Now get away from my best buddy, you rat-faced toadstool! Whoa, take it easy, easy! 
I mean, let's have some compassionate nearness here. Friend, old Betsy here has some compassionate rock salt she'd like to share with you right now. Hey, we're back. Hey, Yo. that wasn't snarky at all. Nope. Snark, well, <laughs> we did come out of the no snark zone, to be uh, fair. Yeah. And Captain Sanity is one of Earth's mightiest heroes. Uh, one of Earth's sincerest heroes. Sincerest I heroes. I think that's what you meant to say. He means well. He means well. <laughs> In the like, sense that Hitler meant well. Or I'm glad to know he's always watching. Well, guys, what else do you want to say about this article? Nothing, really. Nothing. Really. I just don't yeah. want to talk about it anymore. No. Okay, well, better luck next time, Brett. Or hopefully there's not a next time, even though you publish like four articles a week at Gospel Coalition. Jake, what would you... Okay, here's an interesting question. If Brett McCracken was looking you in the eyes right now and you had to talk to him, and I don't want to hear like the snarky version for me and Ben, what would you actually say to Brett McCracken? If if, if he ever listened to this, what would you... what, what, What is it that you'd like to tell Brett? Brett, you don't understand pop culture. Nope. And you just need to stop trying. Yep. You need to stop trying to understand it and stop trying to baptize it and interpret it for people because you don't know what you're talking about. You're a pastor, feed your sheep. And you learn how to feed them food. You're not just starving them. You're feeding them bad food. You are oppressing them with this. Yeah. That's what I want to say is this is oppressive to simple people. I just think of, I don't want to name anyone specific, but I'm thinking of people I know who aren't well-versed in film, aren't maybe well-versed in theology, this has just enough of a sheen of sophistication and of artistic understanding and of biblical understanding that they're going to feel like they have to respect it. And at the same time, it's just gobbledygook. And I feel really bad for those people because they're going to have cognitive dissonance that they'll have to work through where it's just like, I mean, it's like Ollie in the the other Gospel Coalition episode. It's just like, this, is, this should just be set on fire. But mm-hmm. it sounds like it's making really good arguments. It has the style of something that I guess we all think would have really good arguments. And so it's oppressive. It's oppressive to people and it just needs to stop. Yeah. Stop. Please stop. Yep. It's actually kind of energy draining to even talk about it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's gross. It's annoying to me that we have to, these things exist for us to take down. Right. This, this won't be the last episode. That's basically the exact same thing because the Brett McCrackens you will always have with you, I guess, unfortunately. Huh. Yeah, until, well, until life happens to them, real life. Hmm. Because the fact is, you don't sit around and think, uh, sit around and watch episodes of Late Night with James Corden and think, oh, look, there's fodder for another article that will get a bunch of it clicks. How can I connect Paul McCartney to Jesus? Mm-hmm. Unless you've got nothing better to do with your life. So until real life hits, until suffering hits, until persecution hits, until you find a place where real life matters the real people in your life matter as much as the fake people in your terrence malick films Mm -hmm. then this is the kind of trash you're gonna write well guys i know it's not nice to engage in ad hominem but i did look a a little bit on his blog in preparation for this and he has his favorite dining experiences from 2017 and i don't remember the specifics but i think i want to say there's one in italy there's one in texas there's one in argentina Obviously, this guy had been all over the world. Does he have a family? I think he's got a wife. I don't think. It doesn't mention kids. So, yeah. 
I just think this guy is so divorced from real life, just so utterly in his own little world of aesthetics and of, I mean, he's just basically a snob and he doesn't even know it. He thinks- Or he's he, a professional snob. Yeah. Because that's what the Gospel Coalition thinks sells. And I just don't think it's going to sell for much longer. How can it? Yeah, it's gross. So, all right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'd like to apologize again for getting cross with you, Ricky. It was most unbecoming. I'm sorry, Stu. I, I really don't know what my problem is. You've just been tired lately. Just tired? Yes, I'm sure that's all it is. You don't think it could be something else? I'm sure that that's all. I'm so sorry, Stuart. I'm so stupid sometimes. I think we should talk about making Expecto Redempto into a wonderful little podcast. You don't even want to do it. Of course I want to do it, Ricky. I find Kevin and Evan to be tiresome on occasion. It's true. They're your friends. Of course. You never get tired of anyone, do you, Ricky? I should call my mom and say I won't be home for dinner. You're a big girl. You don't have to check in with her. You don't have to check in with any of them. Well, what should we do about Expecto Redempto? Well, Ricky, that's up to you. It was your idea, after all. Well, I don't know what to do with it. Well, you better get to thinking about it. It can be whatever you want it to be. I'm really... I don't actually have an idea. It was some dumb thing I said. I don't know how to make a podcast. Can you... I mean... Will you please help me with it? Ricky, I'm sure whatever you come up with will be utterly wonderful. And I'll be so glad to be a part of it. You be Hermione, and I'll be your happy little house elf. Okay. I am so busy working on this Sunday school. You know that. But if you need anything, you be sure to let me know. I'm sorry again, Stu. I don't know what my problem is. I thought we'd work from the office and order Chinese tonight. That's your favorite, isn't it? Maybe we could go to your place after and watch a movie? I think that would be very restful. By the way, I looked at that article that Kevin and Evan were going on about. And what did our Ricky think of it? Well, I can definitely see why those guys like it. Attentiveness, not manipulation. Suffering, but not without hope. Compassionate nearness, not dispassionate distance. <laughs> well, I did rather like the bit about compassionate nearness. Yeah, of course you would. Of course you would, Stuart. Oh, Ricky, compassionate nearness is what I like best. Sound of Sanity was engineered by Benjamin Solzer, produced by Nathan Alverson, executive produced as all fine Warhorn products are by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alverson. Leave us a nice review on iTunes. Give us five stars. Write us a little blurb. It would be very kind of you to do so. And until next time, folks, stay sane.